This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. When I got the okay to have people from outside of State Street on the podcast last year, this week's guest was the top of my wish list. His commentary on monetary policy, macroeconomics, and markets is some of the most indispensable out there. It cuts through false narratives, focuses on the big picture, and it really does help to avoid the cognitive mistakes and traps that we can all fall victim to from time to time. In a long career working in markets, Mark Dow has done just about everything, starting out as an economist with the IMF and at the U.S. Treasury Department, before moving on to manage money at MFS, and then as a senior portfolio manager at Faro Management, where he focused on trading global macro and emerging markets. These days, he runs his own money and also has two Twitter feeds where he offers his current thoughts on macro and markets. His public account at Mark Dow is how many of you may have heard of him. He also has a subscriber's blog and feed at Behavioral Macro, which delves even further into his thinking as well as more specific trading strategies. Mark, it's an absolute thrill to have you on this week. Thank you so much for joining me. Tim, thank you for having me on. It's really a pleasure. Great. Well, I wanted to start with some questions that were actually inspired by the name of your blog and your subscription account on Twitter, Behavioral Macro. Now, as background for you, as background for people who are maybe listening to us for the first time, the research that State Street Global Markets does actually is very much founded on behavioral finance and its principles. And my team and I do a ton of work based upon investor behavior, tracking institutional flows as momentum indicators. These are derived from our being one of the world's largest custodians and seeing those flows. And then we also look at positioning, particularly when positioning gets quite full, we view it as a contrarian signal. With that in mind, I wanted to talk to you about your experience looking at the world through this behavioral lens. When and how in your career did you come to understand the value of looking at markets in this way? For me, uh, when I was in graduate school, there was really no, the the discipline of behavioral finance or behavioral economics didn't exist. The paradigm was some form of rational expectations, efficient market hypothesis. And I didn't really even believe it much then. Mm. Uh, I I went to the treasury department and I went to the IMF and worked on a lot of external debt restructurings and, and global finance and things like that. But eventually when it came to markets, that belief only strengthened. I worked with guys, I looked around and some of them didn't understand economics very much at all, even though often they thought they did. Uh, And they would spout all kinds of nonsensical rationale for putting on a position or what have you, but they tended to make money. And I had to ask myself, okay, why is this? Mm. They they don't obviously don't understand the economics. They're getting some basic things very wrong, but yet they're making money. So I started digging around and this was 1997, I think. And I stumbled onto Richard Thaler's book. It's called The Winner's Curse. And it was an anthology of a lot of little behavioral finance pieces. And that was the first inkling I had that there was some kind of discipline out there, people studying the the gap between what's rational in theory and what's actually what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I've been guided by this notion that we try and be rational, but we're much further from it than we, we think we are. And trying to get a handle on that gap 
uh, you know, the cog- our cognitive biases and when and how when and how they show up. So that was really it. I started reading about uh, behavioral uh, finance and behavioral economics as the literature was literally being created. I studied kind of risk management, pattern recognition through a technical analysis, all kinds of things that I thought these guys might be doing to help them make money because it clearly wasn't driven by their economic views. And can you talk a little bit about how this may have evolved over the years? And just again, as an aside, right now, in some of the flow and positioning metrics I talked about that we capture, it's actually really hard to find strong flow tendencies and positions actually are quite neutral. You have institutions who are you know, massively overweight tech stocks, also holding lots of cash, but really not doing much else. And then when you start to see behavior change at the margin, it's really easy to get kind of sucked in on very small shifts. But then you, if things quickly reverse, you maybe get turned around a little bit the wrong way. So I'm wondering, right. as the question, you know, in your career, do you find there's ever times where you kind of need to downweight that behavioral approach in favor of other factors in your process? Well, the way I look at it is, you know, you kind of always want to have a weight of the evidence approach. So you look at chart patterns and you look at uh, indicators of of being overbought or oversold, and you look at the economic fundamentals and what the dominant narrative is and what the likelihood of that narrative changing. Because narratives kind of, it's kind of like, I look at narratives like a pendulum and Mm. they swing one way and they go too far and you try and catch when they crest and they're about to go back the other way, kind of timing that. So you also want to look at those factors and you bring them all together. And there are times when your economic view is useful and you trot it out. And there are other times when it's not useful at all. But I I start with, okay, here's a situation, but this is the dominant narrative. Is it waxing or is it waning? If we are at the end of a pendular swing, what kind of narrative would have to take its place and what sign should I look for that it's going to happen? That's one one thing I do. Another thing I, I, I do is I start a lot of my analysis with the question, what's our collective natural bias? Are markets likely to overreact to this news or underreact? So great cases when you have PTSD with something. After the Lehman crisis, there were like three or four years where people were saying Lehman 2, here comes Lehman 2 at the drop of a hat, right? And that was clearly PTSD. We saw it with with the housing market in recent years. People said, okay, prices have gone up a lot. The Fed is tightening. It's a bubble. Things are going to crash because that was our our, our memory. Uh, and it's it's often hard to get into someone else's shoes. But if you kind of start with yourself and say, okay, what would my bias be? Yeah. You know, more, more times than not, you're going to. It's going to be a good point of departure for for answering answering that question. And then you say, okay, this is what people are going to see. This is how they're likely to overreact. What might the differences be? And typically, the way we work in markets is we have that first overreaction. We look in the past and say. What's similar to this? And then we overstate the parallel. And then over time, the differences start to reveal themselves to us. And you just try and get ahead of that process. Uh, it's and you, you don't have to be six. You don't want to be six months ahead of that process. Just a little bit. It's like that old joke about two guys going camping and and a, a grizzly bear shows up. And one guy starts putting on his shoes. And the guy goes, what are you doing? You can't outrun a grizzly. He goes, I don't have to. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> right? So you just need to be that one step or two steps ahead of that narrative swing. And if you see you know, a chart setting up nicely and a narrative setting up nicely, and it's a position that you have fundamental belief and you think you could hold for a longer period of time, then you go. And you maybe you oversize the position initially looking for a breakout. And then you peel back that position after the breakout and you try and ride the rest. There are all kinds of techniques. This is kind of what I get into on my behavioral macro uh, subscription feed. I help people 
with a, a lot of the techniques necessary to um, just manage your risk a little bit better, right? Identify opportunities, uh, frame the opportunities, and then express express the opportunities in a good risk reward way. This is some work we've also tried to do in our research in terms of finding the kind of preponderance of certain themes that are coming through, especially in financial media. And, and we try and quantify it. Do you have anything you use to kind of quantify that or is it mostly just okay this is what i'm noticing this feels like a previous episode i've been through and that's how you glom onto a narrative yeah there's no there's no way to quantify this kind of stuff a lot of it is experience but there there are things you can look for you know exuberance or mm. or a, a narrative uh kind of going going too far one of the things i look i look a lot at the price action okay. and and correlation so let's say that you have a particular narrative that inflation is on the upswing and if that's true, then you should see inflation swaps doing something, and and tips doing another thing, and all these different assets, and and you know what they should be doing. And then you look at the strength of the correlation amongst them, right? Is it waxing or waning, right? And if you have a few assets, but not all of them reacting in a particular way, then maybe it's a weak narrative, or maybe it's a, it's a narrative that it's that's at the end of its pendular swing. To be honest, I don't do as much research as I used to. I found that concentrating on a smaller number of assets, understanding their behavior, what drives them, what they tend to react to, helps you helps you spot when something changes a lot more quickly because you know these assets well. You say that's just not right. And I watch uh, CNBC and, and Bloomberg Television constantly uh, because I, I I like the feel for what the portfolio managers they're coming on and strategists what they're saying. I, most of these guys have been watching them for years, and mm. I kind of know their biases. I, I can kind of draw on that. And there are a lot of guys like, you know, shout out to, to to Mike Santoli, who's excellent at breaking down what the narrative, what the narrative happens to be at a particular point in time. He, he may not be able to tell you which way it's going, but he'll say probabilistically it could go this way, it could go that way. But you know, what what the market is feeling at a particular point in time, he's really good at identifying that. So you can kind of put piece together through looking at price action, looking at correlations amongst uh, amongst uh, key assets, you know, listening to the vibe. You know, also over yeah. Twitter you can pick up the vibe, not as well as you used to be able to, but still you can pick up uh, a fair amount and you, you put it, you, you can put it together. You mentioned you've narrowed your focus more on, on asset markets that you understand really well and particularly using behavioral principles. Is there one that stands out where that guides you better than others, or is it kind of, they're all the same. You just have to apply that framework and, and, and one isn't necessarily easier to trade as a consequence than the others. So the way I look at it is, is I'm following fewer assets, but not necessarily ones I know well from a fundamental, better from a fundamental standpoint. I kind of learn how they behave and I know what tends to drive them, what stories people tell themselves when they're buying it or selling it. The assets that work best in this framework tend to be the most emotional assets. <laughs> so, you know, they're right, whether it's Bitcoin or Tesla or NVIDIA or something, they're assets that have more emotion attached to them. And those often give you the better technical signal, right? Because they're less grounded to, to reality in some sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, fundamentals so don't matter as much, yeah. As much. I mean, they will over the long term, for sure. But over shorter time horizons, they matter a little bit less because people are getting in or out for, for emotional for emotional reasons. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I follow... Uh, U.S. equities. I, I used to do a lot more fixed income and a lot more emerging markets and currencies, commodities and things like that. And commodities are still pretty decent. But U.S. equities, you can get there's a lot of emotion in them. Mm. And you can capture big swings and, and see patterns much easier to trade than these other asset class I found. I wanted to finish the thought on behavior and behavioral finance to ask 
I think a fun question, which behavioral bias or blind spot do you think you have that you have to work hardest to overcome in your process? Oh, for me, it, it's writing high beta winners. Okay. So if I have a stock that's mooning, that's going crazy, that's in the throes of some kind of emotional surge, I have a harder time hanging on to it uh, because you never know when that fever is going to break or how that's going to swing. So for me, just for my constitution, riding volatile winners, high beta winners, yeah. that's hard. The best thing you can do is just downsize your position to something smaller than you think makes sense. That way, you you know, it's not going to, it's not going to keep you up at night. It's not going to fake you out. Uh, with, you know, it's kind of an adverse move that, that that forces you to stop out. The tendency is for people in these stocks as they roll up there, it stops too tight when it's going yeah. your way and they get and they get bounced out. But if your position is smaller, you're less anxious to roll that stop up as aggressively and that can help. Now, sometimes, and this is often the case with me, is to get a position of a size where I feel more comfortable, it's yeah. not, you know, it's not, not, not that relevant unless it has a massive move over a longer period of time. Mm. And I found for me, and again, a lot of this stuff is highly personal. This is what I get into a lot of my behavior micro uh, feed. You got to find out what works with for you. You don't want to copy anybody. You want to you want to steal their tricks. Yeah. And then when you see an idea, you say, okay, now I've got to make that idea mine. I've got to morph it into my risk appetite, my risk tolerance, my portfolio construction, all those kinds of things. Right. Uh, there's a tendency when you're following somebody that whose market views you trust is just to copy their trade and do it. But unless you sweat the process of sizing your position and figuring out where your stop is going to be and what the asymmetry and the payoff is, unless you sweat that process, you're not going to be able to do it in a way that's appropriate for you because so much of trading is just getting to know yourself and your own and your own tolerances. For me, you know, I trade best, more concentrated, large positions for shorter periods of time where I can be more confident that things are going to play out because I see chart patterns. And I see uh, correlations and I see a narrative start to swing. And then I'll overclock the position. I'll make it extra large and capture that first move. And then I'll downsize my position and try and ride it a little bit a little bit further if I think it's one that has further to go. But the difficulty of markets is not only do you have to get the directional call right, you have to get the directional call right and you have to it has to play out over the time horizon that's consistent with the way you structure the trade. Mm -hmm. So if you you really you look at a trade you know you look at a trade I can think of one recently uh, that looked like it was going to break out and I bought call options and it didn't break out so a call option is the ultimate of having to get the direction right and the timing just right, right? but it does no good if you buy a position six months in advance right and it takes six months to play out yeah you you really want to get it when it's about to go it, you might be able to tolerate it if if the if the position doesn't move strongly against you. You might be able to hang around for six months until it breaks out, but for an option, obviously you you can't. You really got to time those those moves uh, just right. So what I tend to do pretty well is capture these these short aggressive bursts mm. when something is breaking out of a pattern or or starting to make a new, a new move, and you know ride, ride that first fifteen or twenty percent maybe, and then get out. You know because I don't know what's going to happen over the longer term. Maybe it's a sector in which uh, their you know, competition is going to come in or something along along those lines. There are people who follow these stocks fundamentally much more closely than I do, right? There are five guys at Fidelity that follow yeah. Tesla. You have some advantages relative to them, but, but understanding the fundamentals isn't one. One of the areas to move on where I would say in reading 
you on Twitter, I think almost since the day you joined Twitter, <laughs> I think I've followed you. Um, one area where I would say you definitely don't have a blind spot is your thinking on monetary policy. And that's where I wanted to head next. It's always very refreshing to read. It's very clear headed. And especially when it comes to the non-standard monetary policies pr pursued by the Fed, other central banks in the post-GFC era, it's been really invaluable to me. So I know you talk about this a lot on other podcasts and on your feed, and I kind of don't want to over overkill it, but I kind of have to ask you about this. This is like me asking the Grateful Dead to play Dark Star. It's like <laughs> it's a really important subject, though. Yeah. It's really important because yeah. it get it wrong foots so and has wrong footed so many investors more than and, anything else. Really, yeah, and and that's where I wanted to focus because it's it's really important for me to to hear this again from you. And I just as a starting proposition, we are in an environment where the Fed is, of course, shrinking their balance sheet via the mechanics of quantitative tightening. But at the same time, you have and have had for years the usual Twitter scolds who, you know, the Fed can't do anything right, whether they're easing policy or tightening policy. One way or the other, whatever the Fed is doing is the next reason the market's going to crash. But what I have noticed, just as a starting proposition, is that at least very recently, it does feel like the reflexive negativity around changes at the margin and what the Fed is doing doesn't seem to quite get the same reflexively negative reaction as maybe it did 10 years ago or even as recently as a few years ago. Do you think that's a fair comment to make? And do you see any evidence that people are kind of learning from some of the things you've been talking about for 10 or 15 years? Yeah, I think it's a fair statement, and I think people have been learning, but not a lot. I mean, not, not a ton. I think right now you, you we're kind of in a quiescent period because people who were banging on the Fed really, really hard just got it so wrong. Yeah, right. I mean, it turned out to be transitory at the end. At the end of the day, there was some bad faith redefinition of what transitory meant to mean a discrete period of time, but in economics, trans, transitory means when the phenomenon stops the inflation stops. It may not revert back to where it was because we have these things in economics called down, behavioral things called downward nominal rigidities. And we also had an aggressive fiscal policy that gave people more purchasing power, except to somewhat validate the new price level. But a lot of prices have come back down. Mm -hmm. uh, and it certainly has proven to be transitory because we didn't see any increase in unemployment or any significant, any meaningful, meaningful decrease in growth. In fact, growth has continued to surprise to the upside at every turn, even surprising, even surprising the Fed, even surprising me, one of the more optimistic observers of this of this whole period. So I think there is some learning. I mean, I find it very gratifying. A lot of the guys in behavioral macro are telling me, dude, you saved me from zero, the zero hedge doom loop. Yep. You know, when when I heard about endogenous money creation and uh, you know, some 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 of the mechanics you talked about, it was an epiphany, epiphany for me. And I and I realized I was doing it wrong. So I I get, a, I see a fair amount of that, but uh, across the market, it's there's still a lot of people fighting it because the intuition is very powerful. And I, I always say that when uh, something is simple and intuitively compelling, it's hard to ab disabuse someone of it, no matter how false it might be. Right? It's just so they're printing money, and they're, even mm -hmm. though they're not printing money, everyone says that and they feel it and they think, well, they're printing money. What they don't realize is, you know, it's not increasing anybody's wealth. Right? They're just saying. Yeah. I'm just swapping out assets in your portfolio. If you want to draw down your investment portfolio and spend that, well, you can do that any day. You don't need the Fed to provide liquidity. You can sell your treasury, treasury bonds at any moment, literally the most liquid asset uh, on, on, on planet Earth. 
Fiscal, on the other hand, increases wealth. It increases government liabilities and increases private sector wealth. That gets people, that turns the dial. That gets yeah. people buy things, but not monetary policy. Like I like to say, you can lead a banker to liquidity, but you can't make them lend. And and we've seen many episodes of this over the years. We saw in 2010, 2011, 2012, 13 even, people were fixing their balance sheets. So it didn't matter that rates were zero. No one was lending. No one was borrowing, right? In, in 2005, six, and seven, policy rates were 5%, but people were borrowing all over the place, getting a third house and another mortgage and taking crazy, crazy risks. Same thing in the year 2000. So it's not so much uh, monetary policy. It's really the state of risk appetite happens to be. And the price of money pays plays some role in that, but it's a much smaller role. I always like to tell people when we talk when I talk about this, it's you know the famous JP Morgan uh, quote, the old banker, he said, nothing so undermines a man's financial responsibility as seeing his neighbor get rich. Mm. right if you're if you're comfortable in your job, and you see other people taking risk and making money, you saying, I can do that too. And you start moving out the risk spectrum. It doesn't, if you think you're going to make a lot of money on your property or, or on your coin, you don't care if you're borrowing at 5% or 3% or 7%. You just don't care. The fear and, and fear, the other end of the spectrum has the same effect. They don't care if the rate's zero. I'm not borrowing because I'm not in a good, I'm not in a good position. So uh, initial conditions matter much more than uh, the price of money. And I think uh, what we're seeing right now, the reason we didn't have a recession, but the cyclical reason for monetary policy not being as effective as, as, as everyone thought was the initial conditions. The ballot, private sector balance sheets were in a good place to start off with, and they were further buttressed by fiscal stimulus. Yeah. So the combination of the two made it very hard. You know, you can't, you know when, when your balance sheet is solid, it's hard to get people to panic. And to get a recession, what you need is people to panic shed labor, panic cut back on investment, panic, li- panic liquidate assets, right? And if you're not out over your skis and your balance sheet taking risks, it's hard to get that dynamic, you know, because it's kind of for a while, it's a self-reinforcing dynamic until it burns out, right? And But if you can't really get it going, then it doesn't, then you never get those panic moments and you never get those cascading liquidation moments like we saw in 2008 and to some degree in 2000, you know, back, back in 2000. It, the, the initial conditions matter much more to the transmission mon- mechanism, monetary policy than, uh, than, than, than the price of money. And after all, we understand why people want to borrow money, more money at lower rates, even if they decide not to. But why are people lending at lower rates, right? Mm. Why would people lend at lower rates if not because they're getting greedy? The intuition is very hard for people to get their heads around, in part because we all went to school and we heard Milton Freeman and money's, <laughs> you know, always inflation is always a monetary phenomenon, you know, all those kinds of things, which aren't really true. And then it just, you know, they say, well, they're printing money. They're giving money to the banks. They're giving money. No, fiscal gives money, but monetary monetary definitely does not. And I think it has to be uh, be, be, be seen in that light. For monetary to get traction, uh, you need an increase in risk appetite that has to come. So Mark, with all that in mind, what would you say is the biggest lingering misconception about monetary policy that people in the market still have? I think the biggest misconception that people have apart from the interest rate sensitivity of, of, of the economy and of inflation, is how money is created. Everyone thinks it comes from the Fed. But if you go back through the history, it used to be back in the Civil War that the, the government supplied 
the money for the system. They would spend it into existence, right? Mm. And that ended disastrously. So in 1863, I believe it was, they had a national bank charter legislation that said, okay, the banks are going to issue the money into circulation. And the Fed is going, no, not the Fed, but the government will oversee the process. There was no Fed back then. The way it works is the bank goes, okay, I'm going to give you, Tim, a credit and a deposit at the same time. And through credit extension, that issues the money into circulation. People think it's really comes from the Fed. It really comes. Our system is designed so that money creation primarily happens from bank lending. Now, in crisis, the Fed will provide a lot of liquidity to the banking system, to the plumbing, so that people can settle with each other. And then to some degree, they withdraw that. Now they're not going to be withdrawing all of it because they've changed the, the whole system. It's gone to a floor system. So we need we need more reserves. And that's a separate discussion. But you know, back back way back when, when we had a more agrarian society, when harvest harvest time would come around, when there was a Fed, right? Um, they started boxing up money and sending it to the hinterland. So they had enough liquidity to transact. Yeah. The Fed is supposed to provide the elasticity in money demand for these surges and contractions and things like that, because they found that the banks inadequate, they, the timing of their credit creation and their issuing of money didn't necessarily map to what the economy needed. The banks would lend too much or too little, and they didn't provide the elasticity that the monetary system needed. So the current system is the banks issue money into circulation. The Fed stands ready to provide the elasticity in the plumbing and the piping so that there's enough uh, money there for people uh, for people to settle. And they supervise the banking system so it doesn't get too crazy one way or the other. So, Mark, let's talk about the current environment for monetary policy. One of the things I always really like in your commentary is the ability you have to abstract from really small questions like, is the Fed going to cut in March or May or June, you know, or is it going to be three cuts or five cuts? As you noted in your previous comments, it, you know, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Um, and instead, you've focused a lot on the bigger picture. And especially in the current environment, it's, it's really interesting to think about the dynamic of all of these central banks now are kind of biased to ease, it would seem, at some point this year, whenever that might be. I was just curious to get your big picture take on monetary policy at the moment, especially in the U.S., for me, it's really simple right now. The most important thing for the market is that the Fed is taking future hikes off the table mm. because that was kind of an open-ended threat. We didn't know how far it could go or how far it would go, but now they're off the table. The only threat we have is 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 really the economy slowing too rapidly. I kind of look at the recent Fed statements and um, the recent data flow as reducing the tails in the distribution. It's become less, even less likely that the Fed is going to have to hike again even if the economy is staying stronger than than people had expected. And it seems less likely that we're going to go into recession anytime soon. So that means we're kind of in the fat part of the distribution. And as long as we stay there, it doesn't really matter if the Fed cuts zero or four or whatever. As long, no recession and no hike coming back on the table, we're good because we're not that sensitive uh, to, mon to monetary policy. I mean, if 500 basis points didn't hurt us, 75 basis points and cuts isn't going to do anything. I mean, yes, there may be a short-term psychological reaction because we overreact to the Fed so much. So if we're really, really overbought and we discover that the Fed you know, and the market goes from pricing six cuts to two cuts, then maybe we're disappointed and the market sells off and you get a short-term sell-off. But yeah. fundamentally, in terms of earnings, in terms of the longer-term path of, of the bull market, we just need to con continue to stay out of the tails of the distribution. Now that said, I'm I'm more cautious right now. I turned cautious at the end of last week. 
kind of tactically, the bull market, I think, is intact. But it's starting to feel a little frothy, a little grabby. Mm. I've had a really, really good run uh, since uh, since October, kind of an exceptional run, concentrated positions going hard. And now I'm happy to just to have cut back on, on all that tactical risk, collect carry, and hang on to my core positions that I think will do well over the medium term that I don't want to sell and and and, and try and try and buy back. Uh, but th- again, that's a tactical thing. I think we're we're in a really good place. We didn't have the kind of washout that we've had in previous uh, financial cycles, but we did have a bottom in October 2022, and we're in the in the process of another you know move out the risk spectrum that will take a number of years. I don't expect this the amplitude of, of this cycle to be as big as previous ones because we're starting at a higher place. Yeah, you know, in terms of valuation, in terms of, we just didn't wash out that in that same way. Uh, but I think we're in a positive, we're in a positive place. In terms of what it would take, though, to maybe meaningfully shift your view on the more strategic elements of the cycle, and particularly, I'm you mentioned carry and. and I'm more FX focused in my day to day. And so this is obviously something that's that's on my clients' minds and, and what we think about a lot. What would it take to meaningfully shift the bias of the Fed and other central banks? Is there something that does potentially pose a threat that you can see on the horizon at all? Well, nothing concrete, but if we were to have, you know, impose 60% tariffs yeah. on China or something along those lines, that could ripple through the system. I mean, we saw in 2018, what a lot of people don't notice, everyone saw the repo debacle at the end of the year and they think it was monetary induced but the economy and the stock market had peaked that summer and it had been going down we had fiscal stimulus uh, from the spending so there were uh, in those years we had we had the tax cuts and we had a huge fiscal spending package those two things were rolling off in in 2000 in 2018 at the same time yeah. that the tariffs were starting to bite those tariffs almost tipped us into recession bigger tariffs could do that, or they could trigger a chain of, of retaliations and tit for tat. That's really far down the road, if at all. For now, I'm just concentrated on us staying out of the two tails. And I think the more likely tail would be recession, but neither tail is super likely. Uh, and we just have to manage you know, the typical overbought and oversold swings that, that the market usually goes through. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about that, and especially the notion that the U.S. economy especially might be reheating up again, but you, you didn't mention inflation. Earlier in the conversation, you talked about inflation being transitory, and I'm, I'm very much on board with that. Contrary to a lot of the commentary you get right now from especially central bankers, but I think people who follow them in markets, is that this last mile of getting inflation back to target is going to be so difficult, when actually, when you look at base effects, when you look at sequential inflation readings, it kind of feels like we're going to get there, especially in the US and the Eurozone, pretty quickly. So I wanted to focus on that and ask, especially on this notion of market PTSD, do you think inflation is perhaps the next instance we have that markets or even central bankers kind of fret about, maybe overcorrect for more than is necessary? I think that's unlikely. I, I, cause I think the, uh, you know, my philosophical bias is that the world is disinflationary by nature, right. even with a deglobalization process and the te- uh, technological innovation will tend to drive prices lower. Yeah. Right? Or at least offset other areas in which prices are, are go, are going up. I never bought into this notion that the last mile has to be difficult for mm-hmm. inflation. I understood it could be. But I said, it's just as likely that it isn't, right? It, it just depends on people are kind of, I think they're making the analogy, you know, they're drawing the, the analogy to losing weight and the last 10 pounds kind of thing. And that's always hard for people. 
but that, I don't see any reason why those two processes should be uh, should be analogous. And in this particular case, well, I think we have a lot of rent disinflation that's going to come through that hasn't come yet that we can kind of identify it, and that will make that last part last part easier. So I think goods markets tend to be disinflationary, services tend not to be, uh, and they kind of set uh, offset each other. You know, maybe we're going into a new world where the bias is towards more inflation. But not net, I don't see any reason why it has to be that way. Um, and I always revert to my bias that until proven otherwise, that things are going to be um, uh, uh, disinflationary. And I'm very heartened to see that recently uh, this subject has kind of uh, been brought up. Tight labor markets bring about faster technological adoption, mm. right? And that because they have to. They can't hire more people or don't want to hire more people. So they have to think harder about how do I substitute at the margin capital in for labor? We're going to see a lot of that. And, and so I'm not too worried about inflation, um, you know, being structurally higher. If we had all that monetary stimulus and all that fiscal stimulus and inflation was still tra- that transitory, right, with no decline in in, in uh, growth and no uh, uh, rise in unemployment it's really hard to think of that kind of wage price spiral getting triggered in the way that so many people, so many people feared. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to stick of this view until until something proves to me that, that that I'm wrong. I just don't see it as naturally as other people do. Well, yeah, I mean, picking up on your remarks, I mean, one of the things I've become pretty obsessed about, I think, much to the annoyance of teammates, perhaps, is just the productivity statistics we've seen in the U.S. especially, you know, improvements in productivity without accompanying job loss to the point you made about perhaps the labor force becoming more skilled or capital deepening, whatever you want to ascribe to it. This is coloring my views on inflation right now. I just wondered if you had any view on productivity specifically and yeah, I do. whether it can be sustained. So I do believe that tight labor markets Increase, tend to increase uh, productivity for two reasons. One, as I was saying earlier, it forces people to figure out ways to get more output without hiring more people because I mean, you may be uh, running into constraints. And then just mathematically, when the economy's slowing down, productivity tanks because you haven't laid anybody off yet, but your output is declining. So just mathematically, you've got the same amount of labor with less output, your productivity has gone down. The obverse happens when 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 the economy starts to accelerate, it starts to swing up. So we're seeing some of that now. I'm convinced we're seeing some of that. However, I don't trust the productivity numbers as a general proposition for two reasons. The first reason is the one I just mentioned, that there's a cyclical component that's really hard to strip out to figure mm-hmm. out what is the underlying steady state productivity. It, you just can't. If you're either always slowing down or accelerating, it's really hard to, to get that read. The second and geekier uh, reason for it is... Productivity is a residual. So think of a number, you know, th- think of, you know, it has to add to 100, right? Uh, growth has to, let's say, you know, your growth your growth number is 100. Let's say 60% of that comes from labor, 35% comes from capital, and the rest is productivity. Yeah. Well, these things are extremely different, difficult to measure. So if you're if you're estimating one thing that's 60 and another thing that's uh, that's 35, any small measurement, if you're off by 10% in your measurement of labor well productivity just it just doubled it went from six to eleven or from five from five, from five to eleven you see what I'm saying so yeah, when you're yeah. it's a residual and when the variable is a residual in the in the equation and it's a small part of the overall picture any small measurement area uh, error in the other variables leads to massive swings in productivity 
Yeah, and I know this because I've done these numbers. I, I did these numbers at the IMF. If you stretch out productivity numbers over a longer a, a, a longer time period, then you can probably filter out some of these cyclical and uh, measurement problems that that productivity has. But for our purposes, looking at it over short periods of time, I just I almost think it's useless. Even though I believe what you say, uh, underlying uh, underlying uh, productivity, I believe that's happening. I just don't think the numbers. I can trust the numbers telling me that that's happening. I know it's happening. I believe it's happening because the labor market is tight and we're kind of in an upswing economically. And those two things tend to produce faster productivity gains. But do I trust the measurements? No, I think they're really, really noisy when you're going month to month or quarter to quarter. Fair. Well, speaking of numbers that we might not be able to trust as much anymore, I wanted to finish the thinking with the yield curve. And in doing the preparation for this podcast, I went back through your blog and I went back to 2017 and I found a post you did that talked about the yield curve's potential to give false positives about recession prediction. And lo and behold, here we are seven years later, that that feels like it's coming true. Um, yeah. In that piece, though, it was really interesting. You highlighted structural aspects in particularly duration markets that tended to invert curves. Then you had low rates, which meant you had pensions that were underfunded. So you had huge demand for duration. You, right. had, you had QE and you had relatively tight fiscal policy. Well, now a lot of those things have changed. But can you, you know, in particular, talk about this safe asset shortage that came out of that piece? That was the real driver, I think, of yeah. the skewing of the yield curve. Can you give your thinking as to whether you still believe there is a safe asset shortage given QE is now QT. There's huge issuance after COVID, higher rates, so less demand for duration. What do you think about that now? Well, I think the evidence is there, right? I mean, we yeah. had 500 basis points in hikes, and the 10-year went from you know 150 basis points to 400. It went up 350 basis points. So that's there are all kinds of ways to measure the term premium, and a lot of them are kind of hocus pocus. But the simplest way is to say, there, was there a parallel shift in the yield curve or not? And there clearly was. We had this big old spike when everyone said, who's going to buy our bonds? And guess what? As soon as we got the first whiff that the economy might not be boiling and the Fed might not have to hike rates any further, the buyers showed up and we had a massive a massive rally in bonds. I What I think, and I've thought this since 2008, and I've been talking about the, you know, the yield curve and we had a lot of AAA assets before 2008 that were manufacturing them, super seniors and all kinds of things that Moody's and S&P were approving that probably they shouldn't have been approving. So afterwards, everyone got much tighter on capital standards. A lot of AAA assets disappeared. And despite all the issuance from countries, uh, the demand increased even further for two reasons. One, financial entities all over the world needed more capital all of a sudden. After the financial crisis, one of the first things the regulators asked for, guys, you need more high quality liquid assets. That means in the U.S., you can have reserves parked at the Fed, or you can have treasuries. And so you have a decline in the other AAA assets that people can hold, and an increase in the need of AAA assets. And that contributed a lot to, uh, to, to the shortage. You have people all over the world now. I mean, rem I remember when I started out my career, Brazil didn't have a vibrant uh, insurance market. They didn't have deep capital markets like they have today. And this has happened all over the world. And a lot of these entities need dollar-denominated uh, risk-free assets. I think that's very much the second reason why there's big demand, wealth inequality, income and wealth inequality. The major drivers of economic growth since the 80s, really, were technology and finance. Mm -hmm. And both of these industries are unusual in that they have increasing returns to scale. So if you 
want to increase your widget production, you got have to decide, okay, do I want to set it up in Wichita or do I want to set it up in Cedar Rapids? And then you have to hire people and you have to buy the machinery and you have to build your widgets, right? But if Mark Zuckerberg needs to increase his output or Goldman Sachs decides to lend 100 million instead of 10 million, guess what? It's the same amount of work going into it. Yeah. Right. So a lot of returns go to a smaller, smaller number, a number of people. So the global financialization led to uh, an increasing returns to scale for the people in the, in the financial industry and technology led to a lot of money accruing to a very small number of people in a lot of different places. What happens when Mark Zuckerberg gets more money? Well, his marginal propensity to consume is a lot lower than yours or mine. And he needs somewhere. So he's going to have a lot of financial assets. So think about you have global GDP and a larger share of that pie goes to Mark Zuckerberg. Other things equal, that's going to increase the demand for risk-free assets Mm. because he needs somewhere to park it. Yeah. Right. But there are other reasons why we shouldn't trust the yield curve. And a lot of it has to do with the changes in in the structure of banking and finance in general. It used to be that the banks borrowed short through deposits and they lent long. That was the business model. But that changed. Banks wanted to diversify from that. And this started 20 years ago by garnering more fee-based income. Those nasty over, you know, overdraft fees and all those other things that we hate about banks, ATM fees or whatever, to diversify, they've gotten into more fee-based, fee-based income. So that makes them a lot less sensitive uh, to the yield curve. And it's not the it's not it's not the way it used to be. A lot more financial intermediation takes place in the bond market and not through banks. And guess what happens there? If you're in the bond market, I can fund a high high yield bond at the five year point. I don't have to fund it with deposits. You know, I'm a financial market. I can take out a swap. I can I can, I can fund it at any part in the curve I want to, right? So I it, it, all I need is the spread at that point in the curve where I'm buying the bond. We're just not that sensitive uh, to the shape of the the yield curve. I've been like I said since I've been on Twitter in 2011. I've been I've been saying the shape of the yield curve is telling us much. And the level it contains a lot less economic information than most people believe, and that once upon a time was the case. Changes in yield levels, right, up or down, you know, how we respond to economic news that has information in it. Most of yeah. it's short term; it rates going up or down. There's usually a narrative involved, and that's important to, to to pay attention to from a trading perspective. But longer term, I just don't think it matters all all, all, all that much for the reasons I mentioned. Mark, we've come full circle back to narratives. But before we go, the final question, we always like to finish with views. And as you mentioned on your behavioral macro feed, you often talk about tactics and and how to size positions, what you're interested in very short term. But I wanted to see if you could finish with a long-term view that you like, maybe into the end of this year, into next year, something that's a bit more structural, one of those core positions that you still really like in your in your portfolio. There are two things I like. I don't know how long I'm going to like them for, but I don't think the, I don't think the stories have played out. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to think one of my strong points is I can, and anybody on behavioral macro knows this. I, I'm I'm not wedded to a position. I don't have pride of of authorship kind of thing. I change my mind really quickly. I pride myself in in being wrong quickly. It's extremely important. There are a lot of guys who do analogs and fancy things, and they have to lose fifty percent on their position before they realize they're wrong. You can't design your risk that way. You have to design your risk so things are falsifiable quickly, right? Because we're not omniscient. We we get things wrong. That said, I still think the home. Uh, I've been bullish home builders for a long time, and I still am, despite the rally that they've had, because they're being re-rated. 
uh, people have overcome their PTSD and they realize, okay, maybe the housing market isn't going to crash, but they're not going to put up the earnings. They're, you know, they're, they're not going to be increasing earnings. They're just people have a hard time getting, you know, getting bullish. I mean, they've stopped being negative uh, to the degree they once were, but it's hard for people to get really bullish on home builders because they think it's just the prices are high. Something has to happen. It's, it's, it's nagging at them, but most of these things are trading at single digit multiples. And some of them have some leverage on the books uh, so their book value will grow. If all they have to do is grow earnings a little bit, their book value is going to explode. And also, they have they still have excellent patterns. Call up the chart of ITB or XHB. That I think ITB is a better representative of the home builders. It's a pure expression of it. But look at the charts; they're breaking out again. They're going to put up numbers. They're going to uh, that they're, they're going to surprise people when your PE is four or six or eight. It, it doesn't take a lot in earnings to get, to to increase increase those multiples. Um, and the other thing I like the agency mortgage REITs. One of the few areas where QT has had an effect, right? I mean, we've done ha- a trillion and a half of QT, right? The uh, securities securities on the Fed's balance sheet have gone down by a trillion and a half, and none of the things that people were predicting were going to happen have happened. Right, and they can say, "Oh, well, it's be it's because they're it's coming out of our uh, the reverse repo." When it, well, it was going into the reverse repo when they were doing QE. That's why it doesn't have an effect. QE goes into excess reserves, and QT comes out of excess reserves. Mm-hmm. No big deal. It's not getting pumped into Tesla, not getting pumped into uh, into altcoins. People just don't understand uh, those particular uh, dynamics. But where it has had an effect is in the mortgage market. Spreads blew out and they haven't come back in. They, they've come back in partially, but there's still a lot of spread compression that could happen. It's probably not going to happen immediately, but it'll happen over time. And the yield on these instruments, you know, mortgages, it's a it's a bet against treasury volatility. And if I'm right about the tails, you know, economic outcomes having shrunk, bond volatility will continue to decline. And over time, mortgage spreads will compress. And these things are yielding, you know, 14, 15, 16 uh, percent, uh, not the mortgages themselves, but these 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 levered vehicles. So they're kind of spicy. But if you believe the, the economic scenario that I believe in, it's it's massive carry. It's it's a nice counterbalance to uh, the things in your book, because if we do have a recession, when people de-risk, they might take a little bit of a hit, uh, particularly if people think that banks have to shed more mortgages. But what happens when you have a recession? Bond yields go lower. It seems unlikely we're going to have the kind of recession that would throw people out of their houses the way we saw in 2008. And the main reason for that is the average loan, the average loan to value, you know, 30 30 something percent, not 70 something percent the way it was in 2008. So, you you know, you're not going to get that kind of volatility. So I don't think you, you don't have to fear mortgages. So the only scenario you're really afraid of is that one tail. Not both tails, the way you're afraid of inequities. You're afraid of that one tail, and and, and the, you know that the Fed has to bring rate hikes back on the back on the table. So those would be those would be my two choices. And you know there are idiosyncratic things here and there. Yeah. And I, you know if you're an investor and, and not a trader, you have your asset allocation and you just ride it and you go to the beach and you enjoy <laughs> yourself and you sleep at night. You don't have to sweat uh, uh, about everything. I think you know we're in a bull market. It's going to continue. It's not going to go straight up, but things are going to work out over time. As people have talked about recently, you know, everyone has an asset allocation model this day, these days, and they have their RIA, and they're not calling up their stockbroker and saying, "Buy me this stock." They they just don't care. They they just automatically allocate. They don't look at valuations, uh, and valuations are going to drive the the value investors crazy. 
right? Because they're just going to keep going up because people don't care. They, yeah. They've got their 60-40 allocation or their 80-20 or whatever it's appropriate for their age. And when things get a little bit scary, they call their they, they call their RIA and he or she holds their hand and says, it's going to be all right. So the money's <laughs> gotten stickier. It's become less valuation sensitive. I'm not worried about valuations. And I think the bull market will, will play out over time. Mark, as always, it's great to hear what you have to say. It, it, you're in California, so you can go to the beach now. I'm in London. It's nighttime. I'm the one who needs to go to bed here soon. But it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you for the last hour or so. For those of you listening, again, please check out Mark on Twitter. His subscription feed is especially worth your time. That's at Behavioral Macro. No you in there. It's, this is not a UK-based feed. It's an American-based feed. Um, otherwise, Thanks for, for mentioning that. Yeah. For the, for the cheapskates, it's just at Mark Dow. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been my pleasure, Tim. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.